Peter chapter 4. There we go. Uh, if, uh, if you didn't bring your Bibles, you can use one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, it's on page 1016, or you can follow along with me in the bulletins as I read the passage for us today. Uh, the passage that I'm going to read for us today, uh, though it's coming at the end of chapter 4, actually kind of begins the final section of this letter. It starts in same, uh, and ends the same way as the one that we just finished. The one that we just finished started with the word beloved back in chapter 2, verse 11, and ended with that doxology uh, that we saw last week, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this section, the final section, again, begins with beloved and ends with a glorious doxology over in chapter 5, to him be the dominion again forever and ever. Beloved, Peter turns with affection, and he turns with affection to his readers once again to address the question of suffering. I, I, I know I say this a lot. You'll have to forgive me for that. For me, this is a beloved passage. Uh, now, before I read it, just a, a couple of uh, quick general sermonic comments on it. If you've been with us for the last two weeks, you know that the sermons over the course of the last two weeks, coinciding or drawing from the passages that preceded this one, were very clear sermons, I hope, and very practical. You could, you could understand them pretty easily, and you could work through, hey, this is what we can do. This is how I can live, perhaps, in light of the passage from the Word of God that we've just heard. The two that were before that, if you recall it, were, frankly, rather dense. Those passages that we found in 1 Peter were rich, uh, complex passages. Uh, they, were, they were deep, but they were complex. The passage that is before us today, verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4, is kind of a combination of that, okay? If you took the, the, the depth and the richness of the sections that ended uh, chapter 3 and began chapter 4, uh, and the practicality and clarity of the one we just finished, and you shook those up together, that's what we've got in the passage before us today. So you get a combination. Now, sometimes when you make a combination, you make a mess. Uh, but other times, when you blend things together, as is the case here, you make something delicious. You make a smoothie, you make a milkshake, you make something else delicious. And what I want to encourage you to do is just drink this passage. Drink it. It is a delicious mixture of the word and the truth and the practicality of the word of God. This is the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, 
what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, we pray that you would help us, uh, help us this morning to pay attention, to pay attention to your word, to pay attention to the preaching of your word. We acknowledge, we confess how easy it is for our minds to wander astray, to not think about this as your word and seek to live it and believe it and apply it in our lives. Help us today. Spirit of God, speak to us through this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Our experience of suffering and the questions about suffering, they are always personal and painful. They're, They're oftentimes for us perplexing, and they are perennial. They're always around. They always come back around. Every generation, every church, every family, every single Christian individual has to wrestle at some point, or frankly at many points in their lives, with the question of suffering. Trying to make sense of suffering is no mere uh, theoretical or philosophical exercise. It's not even, if you will, just purely an exercise if we define theology as just trying to understand and know about God. It's not even purely a theological exercise. It's an existential exercise. It's for every one of us. It's part of our being to make sense as best we can of the suffering that is around us. And from the beginning of God's Word through to the end of God's Word, God is seeking and speaking to us about suffering. Sometimes we see that uh, through the eyes of the sufferer. So think of the book of Job or think of the psalmist. We get, we, we get to go inside the heart, inside the experience of that person and try to process along with them the suffering that they're going through. And other times, like the passage that is before us today, We're receiving from the scriptures, from the word of God, instruction specifically on suffering. This is how you are to process this. This is how you are to think and respond to suffering. Suffering has been, I trust as we have seen, one of the, if not the, major theme of 1 Peter. The whole idea of this book has been, listen, right now you're living in this world as believers, but you are in fact strangers and aliens, exiles and sojourners in this world. And at the present time, you are experiencing what he said in chapter 1, in, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 1, you are experiencing the reality, the, the grievous nature of various trials. They're going on in your life. And so from the very beginning of book and through the middle section and now returning to this section again, he's trying to help people understand the theme of suffering. I imagine him here as, as he's coming to this concluding section, if you will, just kind of taking his readers by the hands and saying to them, beloved, my, my, my dear, my precious friends, you, you dear ones. Please hear 
what I'm saying by the inspiration of the Spirit of God in the midst of your pain. So what I want to do is I want to hear what Peter is saying to them and to us. And I want to work our way through it step by step. There'll be be four steps in this if you'd like to uh, follow along in that kind of way. But the first step is found for us in verses 12 through 13, and we'll go in order through this passage this morning, which speaks to us, these, these first two verses, of our reaction to suffering, the, the disposition that we're to have with respect to suffering. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When it comes to suffering, the instruction of God's word is this. We should expect it. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be shocked by it. Don't let it catch you off guard somehow. The word, there are two words in this verse that I just read for us, both uh, surprised and as if something strange were happening to you. Uh, Both of those words have the same root to them. And they're related very much to the idea of someone who is a stranger, someone who is a foreigner somewhere. And and the idea that Peter is trying to say here is don't let suffering seem to you to be like a stranger, like an uninvited guest. Recall last week we were talking about uh, the stewardship that we're to have. We've been given gifts by the Spirit of God, and we are to exercise a stewardship with those gifts in the household of God. Well, now that terminology, that idea of the household of God, if you caught it in the reading of it, is going to be continued here as well. We're to use our gifts to serve in this household, but here we learn, or at least we are reminded, that this household of God, the church of Jesus Christ, at least as we exist in this world, is not some kind of idyllic household, not some kind of a Thomas Kincaid household here where all the lights are shining and everything's twinkly and everything's perfect. Instead, in fact, this is a household in which you find fiery trials in which, or against which fiery darts come shot by the evil one or under the providence of God. But you can't see them as shocking or surprising. It's not, I don't think it's difficult to imagine or to understand why Peter is saying this, don't be surprised, or, or that, it's, that, it wouldn't, that it would be normal for us to expect that that wouldn't be the case that it wouldn't be a place of fiery trials. Just consider these things that are from 1 Peter itself. This is the Lord's house. And and glory, what we just read of the doxology there right before this section, glory and dominion belong to him forever and ever. The end of a chapter that preceded this one, we read that Jesus is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We read that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and merciful. We've read that Christ suffered for us. That's been the theme of the entire middle section. Christ suffered for us. His suffering was perfect. It lacked nothing. 
It accomplished, it was efficacious to accomplish exactly what God wanted to accomplish through the suffering of his son so that we have been ransomed by his blood. And Peter quoted the psalm, Psalm 34, that says, And the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so you think, if if all that's true, and we could say more, right? We could say more. I'm just restricting myself for the sake of this discussion to what he's already said in First Peter. But if it's all true, then how in the world does suffering continue in this house? Surprise would seem to be natural, but it's not. And that's the clear instruction, right? The fiery trials, whatever their immediate cause may be, The fiery trials are within the sovereign purposes of God, and there's no ambiguity here, to test us, to prove us, to purify us, to refine us, to get rid of the dross. We're still consumed by all of this dross, all of this stuff in our lives, and it is God's desire to remove that from us. These trials, these present trials that we experience are part of that process. And therefore, instead of surprise, following on here into verse 13, the proper reaction that we are instructed in by Peter is to rejoice. Rejoice now that you may also rejoice and be glad when he returns. For Peter... What we are experiencing now, in terms of various trials, is not disconnected from what will take place at the end time, when Jesus returns in glory. In fact, the only way to really understand, to really process, to really live rightly with the trials that you're enduring right now, is to understand that they are part of the thing that's preparing you for this day, this coming day. Peter says, rejoice in these things now and be glad in them because then you'll rejoice here as well. The two things are are separated by time, but not in terms of what's going on in your life and in your heart. Now, remember, we've talked about this a number of times, but just to say it uh, because it's worth saying, the point here isn't that we should rejoice uh, in the calamity, in the trial itself. That does not make any sense at all. The idea here isn't that you call grievous things good things somehow. No, the the, the point that Peter is making is that something is going on here which is truly extraordinary. When we are undergoing these trials, we are in fact, and this is picking up now in the language that you find here in verse 13, we are in fact sharing Christ's sufferings. Okay, that's what it says. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, just before I explain it, Paul says the same idea. It's on the front of your bulletin, Philippians 3, 10, and 11, passage that is well known, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
Sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. To share in the sufferings of Christ is to become more like Jesus, to be more connected to Jesus. And the point that is being made here by Paul and by Peter as well is anything that does that, anything that makes me more connected to Jesus, that ends up making me more like Jesus, that allows me to participate in some aspect of the life of Christ, anything that does that is to be celebrated. Because that's what I want. What I want more than anything else is to know Jesus Christ, to be found in him at his return. So whatever the thorn in the flesh might be, When we are suffering for doing good, we are suffering like Jesus suffered. In the manner of the suffering of Christ, he was the only truly righteous one who suffered. But when we suffer for doing good, we are suffering like Jesus. But there's more to that. If I said we're suffering like Jesus, I might mean uh, uh, you had an ACL surgery and I had an ACL surgery. We have similar types of suffering. But there's something else that's being said here. The idea of what's being said here is that we are, in fact, participating in the sufferings of Christ, that there's a union that exists, a mystical union that exists between the sufferings that we undergo for doing good in this world and the suffering that Jesus Christ underwent, our union with him in death, in resurrection, and in sufferings is part of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and it's worth anything. That's our reaction to suffering. The reaction, Peter says, don't be surprised, do rejoice. The next step is to consider the causes of suffering. And the causes of suffering, just with respect to what Peter's talking about here in this section, this obviously isn't all that the Word of God has to say about causes. But that is in uh, verses 14 through 16. And if you look at 14 through 16, you'll see, and we're going to work through it right now, But you'll see that, on the one hand, there are positive reasons for suffering, uh, appropriate reasons for suffering. Those are found in 14 and in 16, the the positive. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, or in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian. So those those are the positive reasons for being. Verse 15 kind of puts it in the negative. And and it's a way of saying, listen, let let me just clarify something here. We're not talking about any kind of suffering that takes place in this world. And Peter, in verse 15, articulates four kinds of things to say, I'm not talking about this kind of suffering. So the first two that he says is, I'm not talking about suffering as a murderer, or I'm not talking about suffering as a thief. Now, those are kind of extreme things. Uh, One might be tempted to say, well, okay, none of us are that anyway, so we're kind of We're kind of okay, thank you very much there, uh, Peter. And I don't think he's accusing the people who are his readers of that, unless unless we put it in the framework, the kind of way that Jesus is talking about it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, To say that murder and adultery may be closer to you than you actually would like to think. You might like to think there's something that belonged to other people, very, very bad people. But in fact, Jesus says, they're, they're actually real close to you. So it may be that. Peter's saying, you can't suffer for that reason. That would make sense if you're suffering. You can't be a murderer or a thief 
and say, well, I'm suffering for Jesus uh, as a murderer or a thief. And then he goes on to the third one, the, the, after those two, he says, let no one suffer as an evildoer. Now, evildoer is an interesting word. In one sense, it's just the opposite of what Peter has been urging us throughout this letter. Throughout this letter, Peter has been urging us to do that which is good. An evildoer is the opposite of someone who does that which is good. But it's now the fourth time that he's used this rather unique term of being an evildoer. Two of the times prior to this in the letter are used in terms of what people will accuse you of being. Hey, what, what, the, what the world is going to say you are. The world is going to accuse you of actually being an evildoer when you're trying to do that which is, in fact, good. And so Peter is saying, listen, don't make their prophecy true. Their accusation is you're going to be an evildoer. Don't actually be one who is doing evil and practicing evil. Be different than that. You can't do evil suffer for it, and go, I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ. It's awesome. And then the last one that is here is actually the the term that's perhaps the most difficult to understand. But Peter says, don't suffer as a meddler. Don't suffer because you butt into the affairs of other people. You put yourself without tact and without wisdom in places where you don't belong. You, you inject yourself into situations where it's out of order for you to put yourself in that place. Maybe he's thinking of those three spheres that we talked about back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But what he's saying is, listen, you, you can't act foolishly in this world, claim to be suffering for Jesus, and say, this is great, I rejoice in that. So that's not the way to understand these things at all. Instead, what he says, on the contrary, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, people make fun of you because of the fact that you are a Christian. If people belittle you because you're a Christian, if people dismiss you because you're a Christian, If people in your friend group or your would-be peer group, your would-be friend group, want to keep you out physically from a table or from a conversation or in terms of social media, say, no, 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 you are so off base, you're such an evildoer that you can't participate in our chat. You have no right to talk to us. If people want to dismiss you, avoid you for being a Christian, then you are blessed. You are blessed. And Peter says, listen, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed in that moment. Don't be ashamed when they ostracize you in some particular way. Don't be ashamed even if they won't let you join with them in the other things that they do. Don't be ashamed if you don't get promoted or you get overlooked because of your faith. Instead, glorify God. Glorify God because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ rests upon you. In our times of greatest trial, Jesus promised, as the Spirit rested upon him, so the Spirit will rest upon his people. As a pastor, I have and have had the opportunity to be with many of you, 
to be with those who are not here with us today because they've gone on to glory, and to be with others as well in times of deep trial and of deep pain and of deep sorrow. And the testimony that I give on their behalf and the testimony that has been given by countless over the millennia of the church is that when the people of God find themselves suffering for the name of Christ, in the name of Christ, under the name of Christ, the power of the Spirit of God and of glory that is on them at that moment, and that's what's being said here, when you suffer, the Spirit of of glory and of God will be upon you, is incredibly beautiful. It's extraordinarily beautiful. It never shines brighter than it does at those moments. Forgive me for just a second. Sorry, I brought a book and forgot to pull it out. I want to read you one uh, part of a letter from Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish pastor in the 1600s, was uh, one of the Westminster divines, part of the Scottish delegation, uh, and was imprisoned at one time for... Uh, his faith and, and relation, in relationship to the church and to Scotland, uh, and wrote letters from prison uh, that are just a jewel of Reformed uh, devotional life. He's writing this particular letter, and he's referencing uh, in this letter, he's referencing uh, the statement, well done and good and faithful servant. And he says this, his well done, Jesus well done, is worth a ship full of good days and earthly honors. I have cause to say this because I find him truth itself. In my sad days, his days there in prison, Christ laugheth cheerfully and saith, All will be well. Would to God that all in this kingdom, Scotland, and all that know God, knew what is betwixt Christ and me in this prison, what kisses, embracements, and love communion. I take his cross in my arms with joy. I bless it. I rejoice in it. Suffering for Christ is my garland. I would not exchange Christ for 10,000 worlds. Nay, if the comparison could stand, I would not exchange Christ for heaven. That's the spirit of glory and of God resting upon those who are willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Verses 17 through 18 then move us on here to some perspective on suffering. 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, perhaps that passage sounds a little bit odd to us. Why, we might wonder, why would we be judged? Why would we be judged if Christ, in fact, has been judged for us. If he has stood in our place, the place of the criminal, the place of the murderer, the place of the thief, is where he in fact stood. 
Why would we be judged? And why, after all, does judgment begin in the house of the Lord? Now, to be clear, the present judgment that Peter is referring to here are the same thing as the fiery trials that he's spoken about before. He's saying these fiery trials that you're experiencing are part of this judgment, the judgment that we are enduring now. Now, the Malachi passage, and this is why I had us read the Malachi passage from earlier, it's helpful here. In that passage, we see that two things are communicated in and flow from the temple, the household of God, right? The two things that are communicated and flow from the temple and the household of God are judgment and grace. Judgment and grace flow out of that place. Both of them are in this messenger of the covenant. When the messenger of the covenant comes, he is like a refiner's fire. And both of those things, both the judgment and the grace, they begin in the household of God. It emanates from proximity to God. You'll recall, perhaps, that back in chapter 3 we were talking about the relationship between water and preaching in that rather complex passage uh, that has to do with Noah and Christ. And I made the point there that there's a similarity that Peter is drawing on between preaching and water. Water can be that which is good. It can be that which is life-giving, delivering. The, the flood waters actually were part of the deliverance of Noah. And waters can be a spring of life coming up from inside of us, granted by the Spirit of God. Or water can be the judgment of God, can be the means by which the wicked are destroyed. Same thing with preaching. Preaching can be the preaching of the word of life, You hear these things as from the Word of God. You receive them as being from the Word of God, and they are then unto you life. Or you reject them, and preaching becomes then a means of judgment. This is not a blessing to you today. This is actually a judgment to you today. Well, now we come to this section, and you can see the same principle applied to fire as well. The refiner's fire as it comes out. So it comes out, this fire, and the fire can do one of two things. It can consume in judgment or in grace. It can be a judgment that refines and purifies. We need this kind of transformative judgment in our lives from the one who is the messenger of the covenant. It's what prepares us for that day. It's the, the, the present judgment is a refining fire that prepares us for the return of the messenger of the covenant in that last day. And it's not something that destroys us. It ends up being something that purifies us, that is not a destructive judgment. And Peter is therefore saying to us, you might think, or or at least don't think, that God is picking on you and leaving the evildoers off the hook when it comes to suffering. Instead, what he's saying is consider the end. Think about the end. You yourselves need to be purified now to get ready for that day. So think about the end for yourself. This present judgment that you are undergoing in the form of this fiery trial is in fact a discipline from a loving hand of a merciful God 
the Son of Righteousness, has turned to you not with the Son to burn you to death, but with the Son of Righteousness who has healing in his wings, he's turned to you. Consider, though, he says, the end for the unrighteous. If, if the righteous are scarcely saved, and now we're picking up on the Proverbs quotation here, if the righteous are scarcely saved, now we're fully saved by Jesus Christ, but if you want to put it in degrees, we're only saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. If it was left up to us, well, there's no hope, there's no possibility of our own salvation. If the righteous, though, are scarcely saved, what's going to happen to the unbeliever, to the ungodly, to the evildoer? There, there's, if you want to compare the two things, Peter is saying, you want the judgment now, you want the fire now. Because the fire now purifies. The fire then destroys. So the fire now is something in which we can rejoice. So here we go. So far, here's what we've got. We've got the reaction to suffering. Don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice. We've got the causes of suffering. We've got some perspective on suffering that was just given to us in these verses, and we come to this glorious conclusion. Uh, And again, for me personally, one of the greatest verses that I know to direct kind of our settled response to suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust your soul. Where can your soul find rest? Where do you want to put it? Where is it going to find rest when the storms of life come? Where is it going to find rest when the flood waters rise? Where is it going to find rest when the fires of life come? Where is it going to find rest when the accusations of the evil one are shot at you again and again and again for your inadequacies and for the things that you have done wrong or not done? Where will your soul find rest in that day and in the day when you were lying on your deathbed and some of these beloved family members are there around with you and you are taking your last breaths Where will your soul find its refuge? Peter's answer is this. Imitate Jesus. Imitate Jesus, who at that moment quoted the psalmist that we read in our call to worship. Luke 23. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. The Son of God. The Son of God turns to his Father and says, My hands right now are stretched out. My hands are insufficient for care of my soul Yours are sufficient. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. He's a faithful creator. It's the only time God is called creator in the New Testament. He is a faithful creator. He is your faithful creator. Know it. Memorize this verse so that you can entrust your soul. 
Memorize the passages from the Heidelberg Catechism that we looked at earlier. Memorize all, all of the words of all of the hymns that we have sung today so that you can practice entrusting your souls year after year, day after day, fiery trial after fiery trial. You will find him faithful, able, and willing to receive and keep your soul. Don't trust your hands with your soul. Trust his. One last thing, in case you missed it. In case you missed it the hundred other times Peter has said it in this letter. One last thing Peter says, keep doing good. Keep doing good. This is the last time, by the way, he says it in the letter. I haven't counted how many times he's told us to do this in the letter, but I think this is the last time that he actually instructs us. And here's the reality, right? Fiery trials, the fiery darts, using Pauline language, the fiery darts that Satan fires at us, the fiery trials that we endure in this world, they can have the result of discouraging us of disengaging us from the mission of doing good in this world. And what Peter is saying to us as he closes is, is, listen, if all of what I've just said is true, if, if the faithful creator can handle your soul, can care for your soul, then whatever comes up, do not let it dissuade you. Do not let it distract you from doing good. Keep doing good. Jesus on the cross. Woman, behold your son, son, your mother. Doing good on the cross. Let me take care of my mother. Let me take care of this person. Jesus, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is doing good to his last breath. And that's what Peter's saying here. Listen. Listen. The suffering is going to come. Rejoice in it. Don't let it distract you from doing that which is good. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, we pray. We pray. We ask for your help. Acknowledging our weakness, Spirit of God, descend upon us. And help us to walk in you, to understand, to love you, to be prepared for the great day. We pray this in your name. Amen.